Safety, dependability, and power. Chevy Silverado isn't happy unless the work is hard and the day is long. No wonder Silverado is America's number one best-selling retail pickup truck. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com and put a Silverado in your toolbox. Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, and our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. I'm pretty sure we already have. So, welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. to have the puberty talk with our kids way before our parents ever had it with us. Yeah, like my parents ever had it with me. (laughs) Our sons and daughters are entering puberty at an average of one to two years earlier than we did. So they're facing a lot of these changes earlier with their bodies and emotions before we ever had to tackle it. Yeah, and we've talked about this before with Dr. Michael Thompson and that documentary, remember, The Mask You Live In? Loved it. Yep. Um, But while we might have come a long way with our girls, getting them to speak up for themselves, we haven't kept pace with our boys. Yeah, so we're left with um, boys who are maybe more quiet or withdrawn because they feel like they can't talk about their emotions with us and they got to be tough guys. And in some cases, maybe they're left to manage puberty and their doubt of like what's happening to them by themselves because we just just don't have that topic. What, what do we always say? Like, it's not just one singular conversation. It's multiple conversations. Ongoing. I was just talking about it with my husband in preparation for this episode. I was like, you know, I think maybe we should do a check-in again. Yep. You know, as we're entering middle school, my son is 11, going to be 12. Um, it's something that it, it just came up as chat before we fell asleep the other night. <laughs> so um, so to talk about this, we called Dr. Kara Natterson. She's the author of a new book called Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons. And if her name sounds familiar, you're not mistaken. Uh, she's the author of a book that's wildly popular if you have a tween girl. Yes. Uh, you've probably, you know, The Care and Keeping of You, the American Girl book series on your shelves. Yes, that was a go-to book in my house. In fact, I was at a cocktail party with some friends, and they were talking about having the talk with their girls and yeah. all that stuff. And I was like, what? And I was, like, making a mental note on the side, trying to be coy, like, okay, I got to go get that book. And, of course, I went right out and got it. And that's what started the whole conversation with her. Yep, and my 13-year-old just tried to give it to my 11-year-old daughter, who promptly stuck it outside her bedroom door because she's just not ready. Oh, she didn't? Yeah, she does not want to read it. She, I, I think she wants to stay little forever. Well, that's the beauty of that book. You can just, like, sneak it. Just leave it on her <laughs> nightstand or something. Right, right. So, well, when she is ready, you know where to go. And Dr. Natterson is a pediatrician and a New York Times bestselling author. Um, and she's joining us now. Thanks, Dr. Thank you. So um, kids are entering, like I said, kids are entering puberty an average of one to two years earlier than when I was growing up. Um, I have a son who's 11. What What are some of the first signs of puberty for boys? Because I feel like it's 
it's more obvious for a girl um, when your girls are going through body changes and less for a boy. You're a thousand percent right. So when girls enter puberty, the most common first sign is that their breasts begin to grow. And they have these little breast buds first, and then they develop uh, from there. Sometimes you'll see mood swings that are a little more obvious in girls. um, And both of those things are caused by estrogen, the hormone that is in charge of girl puberty. Um, Boy puberty begins in the testicles because the testicles are the factories that are going to make testosterone. And testosterone is the hormone that is really in charge of boy puberty. There are other hormones involved, but it's the kind of the, the main one. And so in order to have enough testosterone to start to develop, you need to increase the size of the testicles and make more. So this is why most parents really don't know when their sons have gone into puberty because for the most part, boys tend to get a little bit private around the same time that their testicles begin to grow. And even if they're not that private, most parents really don't know what to look for. It's not a super obvious change at first. Yeah, and um, I one thing I have noticed amongst his peers, my son's peers, is that just like with girls too, I guess, um, they run the gamut. Like you can tell... The taller kids, my son's on the smaller side of things. So um, how how do we talk to them about their peers and being at different stages? Is there a way to broach it? Because I don't think my son, he wouldn't openly talk about stuff. Um, hey, mom, I'm, I'm really short <laughs> compared to everybody else. So is there a way to like finesse it with a boy? It's just harder with a boy. I don't know how else to say it, to, to, to talk about the differences yeah. and how they're going to be at different stages and, and they're going to mature at different stages. You've brought up so many good questions within one question. <laughs> Sorry. So first, yeah, no, it's perfect because you're kind of hitting on all the big themes. So the first thing is when anyone goes through puberty, it doesn't matter what their gender is, this is tricky. Being early, it's hard. It's hard to be one of the first. Being late is hard. It's hard to be one of the last. And I always tell parents that being in the middle is hard. (laughs) You know, it's puberty. You don't know, you have no idea where your body's going. Um, You know, we we can all look back on it now and kind of be a little cringy, but what are we cringing about? I think at, at the core, we're cringing about really being on the, at the beginning of a path that we don't we don't exactly know where it's going. And so that's that's one piece that's hard. Another layer that you brought up is this fact that boys don't talk. And I write about this a lot in Decoding Boys. Um, you know, some boys are extremely communicative, and you can't generalize about an entire gender. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, but on average, if you look at the way girls behave when they enter puberty versus the way boys behave... It is far more typical to see a girl become chatty and articulate what's happening on her body, in her body, around her body, what's happening to her in the world as a you know young a girl transforming into a young woman. Um, girls tend to talk, and partly that's because over the last couple of decades, as girls have found their voice, it has been encouraged, and there is so much content around them that encourages them to talk about all the things that are happening. But boys tend to get quiet when they go into puberty. They tend to retreat into themselves. Uh, 
they often will shut the door or go to just single-syllable answers and <laughs> occasionally grunts. I have a 14-year-old grunter in my home. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, and that's, that's common. And the world has said to parents, they expect it. This is what boys do. So parents go, okay. And they let their sons retreat because they know it's typical, it's normal. But what that does is that ends the conversation. So when you describe having a son who's not going to come talk to you about being on the smaller side, that is very, very typical. Um, he, he doesn't, he may not have the words for it. The world doesn't tell him to talk about it. He may not even know how he feels about it. Um, and, and all of those things contribute to, to this quiet around boy puberty. Um, I will add that um, I think in particular for late-blooming boys, um, and a late-bloomer is a boy who has not entered puberty by 14, and that is if, if a pediatrician examines a boy and the testicles have not begun to grow by 14, um, that that is uh, a, a slightly more um, tricky situation to navigate because then you have to go down a path of figuring out what's going on and why isn't he entering puberty. The majority of, of boys who look like they haven't entered puberty actually have. They just, um, it takes a year or two between when the testosterone starts to come on board and the body starts to change. So it may be that he's in the very beginning and you have no idea because He's not getting tall or broad. His voice is not cracking. You know, there are none of these external signs yet. Yes. The uh, hair, you know, with a girl, like you can tell with hair and all the other things that we were talking about earlier. And it's just, it's less obvious for a boy. And so it. it I will, I will it, make a quick plug about hair, um, which is important. So turns out that hair growth and puberty are totally separate. Oh, it's, really? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy fact, but it's an important one for parents to know. So the hormones that govern pubic hair growth, underarm growth, underarm hair growth, um, thickening of the hair on the arms and the legs for boys eventually, beard and mustache, the hormones that are in charge of that are cousins of testosterone. They're similar in structure, but they're not testosterone, and they're not produced in the testicles. They're produced in the adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys. And so for girls and boys alike, there will often be um, some stress in families when a child has either pubic hair or underarm hair relatively young. You know, a kindergartner or first grader who has a little bit of hair down there, parents are running to the pediatrician really, really worried. Absolutely go ask your pediatrician, but I'm going to tell you what your pediatrician is going to say, which is that doesn't mean that she or he is actually in puberty. That's wow. something that goes typically in parallel with puberty, but it has nothing to do with becoming reproductively mature. It has nothing to do with being able to have make a baby at some point. Interesting. So I would not know. I did not know that. But you can imagine how um, frightening or a little alarming it would be if your, you know, five or six year old does develop hair. You'd be like, what? Totally. Yeah. 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 yeah totally. And, and, you know, the other pieces, then there's a hygiene element where they need to learn how to, mm -hmm. how to, you know, I, I'm a big fan of soap in the shower. Like yeah. it's really basic, you <laughs> know, um, but when you've got hair, you trap smells and odors a little bit more readily. And so all that, you know, these conversations that you think you're going to have with a 12-year-old, you have to have with a six-year-old. <laughs> I remember when my son would go start doing showers and stuff and his hair would be wet. And I'd be like, did you shampoo your hair? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, it 
still saying, I think you just wet it. Like that, they, they think that a, a shower is just going and rinsing off. I'm like, no, you have to take the loofah and the, like do the whole it's thing. So we went, funny, to, right? we go to Target and I'm like, let's make it like exciting for you. So you pick out stuff that you want. And so then there was buy in and it was a little bit better. So has he started X body spray yet? No. no. <laughs> All right. So, doctor, how can we talk to boys about body image? And we're sort of touching on this. Um, you know, we certainly focus on girls. We, talk about, you know, eating disorders. Um, but you say that teenage boys can engage in unhealthy weight control behaviors too. So w- what does that look like? Um, I think body image is one of the great misses that um, we have right now, right? So we're really, really good at identifying when girls struggle with how their body looks and what, and, and then when they sort of take measures sometimes drastic measures to try to change their body, whether they restrict their eating or over-exercise, we we know what to look for because we're generally looking for girls who are trying to achieve thinness. Mm -hmm. And that has become our social definition of uh, an eating disorder, if you will. Um, But uh, this idea of body dysmorphia, so when you look in the mirror not seeing really what exists or or having an ideal that is very exaggerated and wanting to fit that ideal, um, these concepts have no gender. Boys feel it as much as girls. And in fact, the the data proves this. When I was in medical school, they used to teach us that 10% of eating disorders were male, 90% were female. When you look at the research, it's actually 25% of eating disorders are male, Hmm. 75% female. And if you look at body dysmorphia, so having to the sense of your body that is not realistic, uh, it's 50-50, male and female. And the reason why uh, I think we miss our, our boy issues is that the body ideal for males is different. Um, it's not a thinness ideal. Uh, it's a bulky yeah, ideal. bulking it's a up. muscular frame, yeah. And you start asking boys what they're willing to do to get muscles, and it's pretty remarkable the number who are willing to take supplements that are not necessarily studied and tested, the number that are willing to take anabolic steroids, 6% over a lifetime will take anabolic steroids. That's a lot. So uh, this is an issue that we need to address. And when I teach in classrooms, when I'm asking fifth and sixth graders uh, what their experience is with body image, I'll tell you, the class goes the same way every single time. The girls totally take over at first. They're giving lots of good information. They know this drill. They've been raised on this. And then I ask, well, what about the boys? And the girls are stunned. They have never thought about the boys. This is not a boy issue to them. And the boys start to talk, and they describe the pressure they feel to look a certain way. And they walk the girls through, you know, a head-to-toe summary of all the things that are expected in an ideal male body. And I think everyone in the classroom has their eyes open in a new way. The boys can talk about something they've never talked about before, and the girls become aware of something that they've never been aware of before. Um, So I think it's a really important conversation. We have done a very good job as a society, not perfect, we're not done yet, but we've done a very good job of broadening the female beauty ideal. Over the past 10 or 15 years, we have redefined what a beautiful body is for women. And we have room to go here, uh, but it's better than when we were growing up. We have to do that for our boys. 
When you talk about the head to toe, what comes up? I mean, are they worried about their hair? Clearly, they they want to have biceps, right? Do they do they want six packs? Yeah. What's what's the yeah. desire? Yeah, so it starts with hair. Okay. So they either need a full head of hair or a perfectly rounded, shaved scalp. And they talk about that very openly. And then they move towards facial features. And facial hair is a really big one, which is sort of an interesting new one, because as facial hair has come back into vogue, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of pressure for who can grow it, right? That's something that when I first started teaching was not a big topic of conversation. Now it is. And then you walk down the body. They want broad shoulders. They want, you know, big biceps. They want a a six-pack ab and a muscular chest, uh, but a hairless chest, right? So where there's hair and where there's not hair, if you start flipping through magazines, you go, oh, I never thought about this. Every picture shows something really similar. Um, You know, they're supposed to have, they're supposed to be lean, but muscular. It's a true body ideal. In fourth and fifth grade? Yet they're living in this world that's very visual. So, yeah, that's what they're seeing as the goal for when they grow up. Can you imagine being a boy? You're in fourth or fifth grade. You're, you're on the cusp of puberty, but you don't know it. You have these hormones starting to course around your, your body. You have no idea why you feel the way you feel because of testosterone. And by the way, this is the guy you're supposed to look like in 10 years. It's a lot of pressure yeah. to not talk about Right, and they don't talk, right. So here's a random question. Um, I've noticed, as we've watched our kids in middle school, a lot of the middle school boys are getting their growth spurts long after the girls. And and I kind of remember in middle school, like, going to dances and having the guys come up right to my chest. <laughs> and, like, you know, they were, they were perfectly fine with that. But the idea uh, <laughs> that the, the boys take a little longer, don't they? Yeah, so boys, girls enter puberty on average sometime around nine if they are white or Hispanic, and um, as young as eight if they're African-American. Now, uh, I will tell you, there are a lot of studies out there that have looked at this, how this time frame has moved back. So it used to be that girls entered puberty closer to 11 or even 11 and a half. This is an average. It is also perfectly normal for a girl to show very few signs of development at the end of middle school. So it's a very broad range. Mm-hmm. And Getting your period hasn't really changed. The average age for first period is about somewhere between 12 and a half and 12 and three quarters. Um, it, it's maybe moved back by about two or three months in a generation. So if you stop and think about that, the beginning of body development has marched back by a couple of years. Getting your period is only marched back by a couple of months. What that means is the time between starting physical development and getting a period has essentially doubled for Mm -hmm. girls. So puberty is starting earlier and it's going slower. It's stretching out. And the same is true for boys. So for boys, it used to start around 11 and a half. And now, about 80 years after those first studies were done, now we know it starts closer to 10 or so if you are white, uh, 9 if you are black, and if you're Hispanic, it's somewhere in between. And these are the only groups we have data for. So there are scientists and researchers who are now going out and trying to look at data on lots of other groups, um, but this is, this is what we know so far. Um, the pubertal growth spurt is very much a part of this path through puberty, but it tends to happen later in puberty, and because girls are still entering puberty first, Mm -hmm. on average, they're going through their pubertal growth spurt 
first. So okay. the classic sixth grade class, the girls are a head taller than the boys. Yeah. Not all of them, but many. And that, that hasn't changed. It's like that in eighth grade. My daughter's in eighth grade, and we're in the middle of a dance class right now. And I, I watch, and even with without the heels, because some of these girls wear heels, and they, sometimes I'm like, wow, those those are taller than I even. I don't even have a pair like that. But um, you can tell there's a huge divide between the boys and the girls in eighth grade. Yeah, and even among the boys in eighth grade, you can see a difference from the shortest boy to the tallest boy of a foot and a half. Yes. In every class. It doesn't matter what school you go to. It doesn't matter what neighborhood. This is a normal, right, this is a normal span. It's it's particularly interesting for that later blooming boy because later blooming boys tend to be shorter, right, because um, we kids grow about two inches a year, give or take, but on average they grow two inches a year. And then when they hit this pubertal growth spurt, they grow three to four inches a year. And for girls that lasts a couple of years. For boys, it can last three to four years. That's where they get a lot of their extra height. If you've got a late-blooming boy who is not entering puberty until he is 13, 14, 15, um, that boy is still growing his two inches a year. But then this funny thing happens where the latest bloomers slow down their growth to maybe a half an inch a year, Hmm. or some of them don't grow at all for a year or two. Just when all the other boys are going through this crazy growth spurt, they are stalling out. And so the difference between the shorter, later blooming boys and the taller, early blooming boys becomes more dramatic. And that's what you see in in that seventh and eighth grade class. Um, And it's pretty dramatic when when you kind of line them up. My son is a very tall 14-year-old, and his best friend, I mean, barely, barely comes up to his shoulder. Okay. And... You know, they, that's, it's classic. Yes. And that impacts too. Like my brother was very, very short when we were in high school and it impacts your personality because you, you become, he was the class clown, right? You know, like if you're not going to be taken seriously as the big, tall debonair guy, you're going to be, you're it does gonna, kind of fall that way. Doesn't yeah. And it, it changes the personality. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because if you begin to look at stories written by late blooming guys, and there are a lot of them around, um, they will talk about how it really deeply impacts them. Some some of the most successful people in the world, athletes and business people, will attribute their grit and their hard work to being smaller and scrappier. Mm-hmm. So I actually think when parents say, what can I say to my late-blooming boy or my shorter boy, um, you know, I like to point to examples of people who have used their size to their advantage. We put this negativity on short stature that it does not deserve right yes. this is this is just totally it's a social construct and we should let that go exactly so this switching gears just a little bit but um as the as the boys get older and they're reaching middle school and high school we've talked we've done episodes we've had lisa demore on um talking about girls uh, a couple times um but how can we she's fantastic how how can we talk about consent in a way that they would absorb and be willing to talk about because at the onset we were just talking like having a conversation with a boy is like grunting like don't want to talk go up to their room so how can we do that we talk about it with girls because we're obviously like trying to empower them so how do we do that for have that conversation with boys so i'm going to give you two completely separate pieces of advice here the first is a very general one which is the whole point of my book is we should be talking to our boys the same way we talk to our girls 
even though it's called Decoding Boys, really the book's main argument is puberty is not really gendered. Yeah, the parts are different. The hormones are different. We go through the biology, it's fine. But at its core, it's about transformation. And that has nothing to do with whether you're male or female, XY or XX. And we should really be taking the same conversational frame that we use with our girls and using it with our boys. So that's the that's one answer. Okay. The other answer is that it's both never too early and never too late. What I mean by that is if a parent has a younger child, a kindergartner, first grader, second grader, even a preschooler, there are ways to have conversations about consent that have nothing to do with sex. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that is a great road in to these later conversations about consent that have to do with intimacy and sex. So you're going to have a thousand conversations over the years about all these different topics. How great is it to frame the term consent in in the sort of sharing realm, yeah. right? So yes. it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take your jacket without asking, so I'm going to ask your consent. It's just throwing this word around. So it's never too early for parents to begin to educate their kids about consent. It's also never too late. I always have parents who come to me and say, I should have started this three years ago. I've missed the boat. I have a high schooler. There's no way I can do this now. No, you can do this right now. You can start now, and you can start by saying, you know what? I should have started this a while ago. I feel like I got close to missing the boat, but it matters to me. So I'm going to start having these conversations with you now. And you don't have to do the introductory stuff because a lot of kids have already gotten this information in school, through entertainment platforms, through news platforms. They're very well informed, our kids. Um, And so you get to meet your teenager where he or she is at. And you can say, what do you know about this? What are you thinking about this? And then pick up the conversation there. Sure. So going along with that, what if your teen has developed a relationship and it's physical? Like this happened with my nephew. Um, you know, he would, sorry, I'm throwing him under the bus, but, um, <laughs> you know, he would make out with his girlfriend on the couch. You know, how do you, how, how do you talk to your kid about public displays of infection, of infection? <laughs> Public displays of exactly uh, public displays of affection and and what is acceptable. Yeah, so so much of parenting is personal. What works in one family, what feels acceptable or um, normal, even in one family and in one part of the country and in one uh, culture, uh, might feel not okay in another. Um, so. I will start my answer by saying, um, in parenting, you do you. Amen. Don't judge someone else, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> they, they can do their thing, but you do you. Um, and in order to do that, um, you always want to share your rationale with your child. Because if you come up with a rule or you, you have sort of a blanket statement, but you don't explain why, you haven't really given your child anything to hang their hat on. There's no way that they can take that advice outside of your home and follow through. So 
I'll, I'll use the example of video games. Um, if you have a limit for the amount of time that your child can video game or you don't believe in video games in your home or whatever it is, if you just set that limit and you don't explain why you feel that way, when your child goes to someone else's house and there are video games available, they cannot take the rationale that you have and apply the rule there. They can't go, oh, uh, you know, my parents don't want me on video games because I become a monster after 45 minutes of playing video games and I'm really unpleasant to be around. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to not play video games or I'm going to try to limit it to 45 minutes. Like they don't, if they don't know why, they can't take that rule outside your home. So you always want to, you're not apologizing for your rule, but you always want to explain. So if you've got a, a family member who is showing affection with a a significant other, you know, for some people, that's going to be a beautiful thing. This is great, romantic love, you know, blah, blah, blah. For someone else, it's going to be, this is not appropriate. This feels uncomfortable to other people. You know, I'd like you to do this. I don't mind if you do this. I'd like you to do this in private. For other people, it's going to be, this isn't comfortable to me as your parent, and I don't think you should be doing this yet. Those are all different responses to the same behavior, sure. none of them make any sense without explaining to a child why. And nothing positive will come unless after you explain why, you shut your mouth and listen to what they have to say. Mm. Yeah. Because that is the other piece to all of this, which is we learn a lot from our children. They have very strong feelings, especially as they get older and they go through the high school years. They have very strong feelings. They have very formed opinions. The world they are growing up in is very different from the world we grew up in. And we do ourselves a great disservice if we don't listen to what they have to say in response. And that's that's a conversation. That's right. the whole point. You touched on something with the video games just a minute ago, and you spent an entire chapter in Decoding Boys on addiction. And I found this chapter particularly interesting to me um, because I throw that phrase around in my house quite a bit uh, when it comes to screens and video games. My son is a a huge video game or video games on on, um, Xbox or whatever or on his phone. How can we talk to the boys about addiction um, in a way that they can get their head around rather than just hearing that I don't I don't want you playing the video games and and to flush it out for them in a way that they can understand you gave some tips in the book about how to stay ahead of it because when you said about the mood swings that's that's a real thing it's legit when Fortnite was in its heyday and you and I told him to turn Fortnite off I thought his head was going to pop off (laughs) literally yeah and you were not alone. Yes. Uh, well, there's YouTube videos of people that took the, turned the, like pulled the cord. Have you ever seen them? No. Oh my oh, yeah. goodness. There's tons of videos on YouTube of oh. parents doing that and just watching the fireworks afterwards. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah. So, you know, let me tell you that I wrote this book for parents, but I wrote, I wrote with the intent that they could hand it to their kids and their kids could read it. Um, high schoolers can read this book. Middle schoolers who like to read can read this book. Middle schoolers who don't like to read, you're punishing your child by handing them my book. <laughs> um, so uh, don't do that. Um, but um, but there are explanations of how the brain works, how it wires itself, why we seek 
a dopamine hit in our brain. That's the chemical rush that feels good when we do something. And dopamine is at the core of addiction. It doesn't matter if we're talking about video games or drugs or shopping, any any addiction at all. Dopamine is sort of the, the common denominator. If you have a if you're informed about what's happening in the brain, that helps you to understand how to minimize addiction risk. The same is true for your kids. There's nothing in this book that is not relevant to your kids and that and where the advice would be different if I was giving it directly to kids. The advice is the same whether I give it to parents or to children. So if you have a child who's interested in reading it, hand them the chapter. And, in fact, my son, uh, who will read nothing that I've ever written, <laughs> um, he, uh, I, I literally had to beg him to read this book, and he was willing to read two chapters, um, and I took it, and one of them was the addiction chapter, and he was interested in it um, because he has heard that word so much, and he wanted to understand what it really means and um, and how you avoid it. Yeah, there's really good suggestions in how you spell out, like, how you'd have, like, one, two, three line item, like, how to do it, so it's really good. It's a really great chapter. Thank you. All right, so I'm guessing the other chapter he was willing to read was the one about porn. Interestingly, no. Oh, oh, my children! My children are so tired of the porn conversation. At dinner. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got to imagine what my house is like. It's like, hey, how was school? Let's talk about porn again. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so, uh, no, he was willing to read the brain development chapter to understand why kids make bad decisions. But let's talk about porn. Yes. All right. So I did. I, I, I thought I was segueing, and I didn't. But um, thanks. <laughs> Uh, but you do spend a chapter on that, and you you spell out specific things that need to be said to our boys when we're talking about porn. And um, let, let's start with safety. What what do we need to tell our boys about porn? Right. So um, just a quick 30,000-foot uh, view of porn, which is if your child has an Internet connection, they have access to porn. And um, the data is really alarming that, depending upon what study you believe, uh, the Average age of first viewing, so 50% of all boys uh, have viewed porn sometime between age 11 and 13. So by the time kids finish middle school, for sure, at least half of them have viewed it. Uh, They're not necessarily habitual watchers. In fact, they're not even really looking for it, most of them, which is the third big picture point, which is it's finding them. Yep. Um, We did a whole episode on it. We spent 45 minutes talking about it. It's it's disturbing. Yes, it's very disturbing. So in terms of safety, uh, for parents who don't want their kids porn exposed, um, I just then would strongly suggest that you rethink the access you give them to connected devices. It's not even about owning their own phone anymore. It's about handing them your phone or an iPad or a computer with an Internet connection because porn is very good at finding them. Um, In terms of how we talk to our boys about it. Again, I go back to it's how we talk to our girls about it. I've never met a parent in my life who doesn't want for their children to eventually have loving, healthy relationships, right? Um, Eventually being maybe the, the variable there because some parents want it sooner than later for their kids, and that's where there's some differences in parenting style. But they all want the same thing. They all want their kids to end up in a happy loving, safe relationship. Right. What the current free porn is teaching our children, often before they've ever really thought about what 
sex or intimacy will look like for them. I mean, we're talking 11 and 12 year olds, right? Porn is teaching them that sex is violent, aggressive, misogynistic. Um, the free porn that is coming at them is um, it's it's not the sex you would want for your child to have as part of a healthy, loving relationship. And that's the conversation. I mean, really at the core, as parents, we have to help divide sex from porn and help our kids understand that you you can be pro-sex, right? Mm-hmm. You, can, you can keep an open dialogue about sex. You're not demonizing it for your child while at the same time being concerned about what they are seeing when they consume porn. It it's it was really it's it was disturbing and it is it's sometimes these kids are just happening on it they're not even looking for it and so that's that's the uphill battle for parents is just staying on top of it and ahead of it. Um, should we bring up the law, the, you know, federal laws yeah. around porn? Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, uh, here's the deal: um, pornography is. is technically illegal under the age of 18. You shouldn't be viewing it, but um, there's no enforcement. And, and especially if you go onto a social media platform, an Instagram, Snapchat, um, what have you, YouTube, um, the pornographers are figuring out how to deliver the content to kids under 18 quite easily. Mm-hmm. Um, if you compare that with nudes, so nudes are naked pictures that um, people take and share with one another. Mm-hmm. And I say people because I think parents worry about it with their kids, but it's far more common among adults, frankly, than among kids, which is fascinating. When you stop and think about why has this become so popular, it's, uh, partly it's just become a, a cultural norm um, that that people share naked images. Why? Well, why would anyone... Uh, that's a whole nother episode that's a whole nother podcast that's a podcast um but you know the 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 issue with nudes is that um if you if you look at child pornography laws they were designed to catch child predators who are i mean people who are very deeply disturbed who are looking at images of younger children but the primary violators of child pornography laws today are kids Mm -hmm. because it's kids under 18 who are taking nude pictures, sharing nude pictures, and saving nude pictures. When you take it, you create child porn. When you share it, you transmit child porn. And when you save it, you're in possession of child porn. Even if you are a 16-year-old who is fully aware of what you're doing and you are choosing of your own free will to do this, you are in violation of federal law. And those are laws that seem to get enforced, while not as often as they could, certainly more often than these laws around pornography viewing and and handing pornography to our young children. So I think we've got a serious problem here in sort of the prioritization of what we're trying to do. We've created a system that penalizes kids rather than penalizing adults for um, sort of getting this content to our kids. And that's, um, to, to me, that's very, um, that's very, very worrisome. Um, the, the only other thing I will say about nudes that I think parents need to know and they need to talk to their kids about 
the vast majority of nude images that boys take and send are pictures that are taken pointed down. Um, sometimes boys will take a picture or a full body shot or they'll take a video, but more often than not, they're taking a picture sort of pointing down at their groin. Um, girls will often do the opposite. They'll take a picture pointing up. And when that happens, uh, then um, there's an identifying feature in the girl's image, right? Uh, a facial feature, a piece of jewelry, something that's a giveaway of who the girl is. Whereas in the boy image, that, that's rarely the case. Mm-hmm. Um, that has created a real discrepancy in terms of the blowback for kids, right? Because if a girl nude is circulated, you're far more likely to know who that girl is. Mm. If a boy nude is circulated, you're far less likely. I argue that the consequences for girls are devastating, but because there are fewer consequences for boys, I think that is equally devastating because it, it then the deterrent to do it. Is yeah, gone. there's no deterrent. Yeah. Yeah. So that worries me. <sighs> well, I thank you so much, Dr. Natterson, uh, author of Decoding Boys, for joining us today. And you said something in the very onset of the whole thing that actually strikes me is that it's true. We need to like look at talking to our boys the same way as we talk to our girls. And I know that as I say it to you right now, but like in the day to day practice, I, I, I know I fall the stereotypes of just, ah, he's a boy, just, you right. know, and that's just, this is the thing that we have to like try to stop doing anymore. No more. We have to treat them the same and have the same kind of conversations with them as we do with the girls. And meanwhile, right now I'm, I, I know, Tracy's son and I'm like sorry buddy <laughs> mom, mom's coming home with a whole bunch of stuff to talk about doctor I have to say with this with these podcasts I after reading all these books like I I, I think I beca- I I get smarter by reading all these books and then but there's it goes in in fits and spurts like I'll be like really out of the gates like oh I read this thing and I'm gonna do it and then like a couple weeks later it falls falls by the wayside a little bit and then I like get the impetus to try it again so thank you so much for joining us today to talk about decoding boys and um, everyone should go pick up the book and and read about the practical tips with addiction, porn, uh, consent, all those things. They were all in the book. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I think you're doing a great job. Thank (laughs) you, doctor. (laughs) All right, guys. Great speaking with you. So apparently, boys need our attention as much as or more than girls. Yes. Um, and, you know, I was thinking, like, with the Me Too movement, there's a lot of fear. I think it's hard to be a boy now because there's so much judgment. Yep. And, you know, there's so many ways you can make a mistake. It, it's it's almost paralyzing. So um, we need to, you know, we've done all this empowerment of girls. For girls, lean in. Yep. We need to really look at our boys and say, listen, you know, it's fraught out there, but we're here. We can talk to you if you've got questions. You know, this is where we make the mistakes together and we forgive each other and we learn. Yes. And we talk and let's just keep talking. Yep. Not just one talk, but many talks. All the talks. Speaking of talking to us, <laughs> we, we'd we love to hear from you. Uh, you know, we've been doing the podcast. This is season five. five. Uh, please go on iTunes and rate us and leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends. Share it with everybody. Yeah, we want your feedback and suggestions for making the podcast better or, or topic suggestions. Um, sure. Check out our Facebook page. Uh, share our posts if you like them. 
um, give us a call at 331-704-0046. We really enjoyed a voicemail from uh, listener Steve. Yes. Or you can email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Radio podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. Apparently.